0: Today on Against the Grain. Mike Davis was an exceptional thinker and writer, a deeply committed socialist who dazzlingly illuminated the unfolding ecological and social contradictions of late capitalism. Whether writing about his native Southern California or contemplating the fate of billions in the world's mega slums, Davis gave us new waves of seeing, always with a post-capitalist world in his sights. Geographer Richard Walker discusses the many contributions of his fellow urbanist and radical. From the studios of KPFA in Berkeley, California, this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm Sasha Lilly. Mike Davis was prescient like few others. Twenty years ago, He wrote about the global pandemics looming because of capitalist agricultural practices and urbanization. He highlighted the inferno that would result from construction and rebuilding in fire-prone parts of California. He predicted heightened social unrest in cities like Los Angeles and reminded us that the deep inequities of capitalist society are built into the infrastructure of cities, but also that what is made can be remade. Geographer Richard Walker was a longtime friend and colleague of Mike Davis, who died on October 25th. He's the author of many books himself about California, including Pictures of a Gone City, Tech, and the Dark Side of Prosperity in the San Francisco Bay Area. I should disclose my own connection with PM Press, which has published that book. Dick, how did you first encounter Mike Davis?
1: I met Mike back in 1984 in London, and I'm not sure who told me to look him up, uh, but somebody had, and I was in Paris that year on a Fulbright, and Mike was working for New Left Review. And uh, that was, you know, a very formative part of his life that doesn't often get mentioned because working for New Left Review is where he really learned how to write under the influence of Perry Anderson and Robin Blackburn and so on, and ended up on their their editorial board for the rest of his life. So we met in London, we went to a pub, and we sat there for about four hours, I think, talking not about what I expected, which, uh, which was New Left Review, but actually about California. And that's where um, he was, beginning to think about what would become his work on Los Angeles and California and and it was an inspiration to me as well because I ended up spending much of my career writing about California.
0: Right, both of you native Californians. Tell us about Mike Davis's background and how did he become radicalized?
1: Well, I, Mike's early history has been, I think, worked over a fair amount. He, uh, he was a working-class kid born in Fontana, uh, the great steel town east of L.A. Uh, then uh, his dad was a butcher. They moved to San Diego, one of the sort of working-class burbs of San Diego. And, of course, that's why he is a child of Southern California and of the Southwest. He went on to do truck-driving jobs and other kind of odd jobs. and. You know, had no aspirations to be an intellectual, but the man was so brilliant that, that as he uh, got radicalized, I began to think about, you know, I guess through his influence, influenced by uh, other truckers and unionists that he ran into, in those early days. So he became active with unions, and uh, moved up to LA and uh, became active and left politics. Uh, the 1960s and early 70s. So that's where he became radicalized. And then, you know, I think that was honed when he went to Britain because he spent time in Northern Ireland. Uh, One of his children, the mother of one of his children is Northern Irish. And um, I think there's a certain romance of his his, uh, Irish roots. I don't know if you've noticed, but if you look at pictures of Of Mike and Jack London at the same age. They look (laughs) almost identical. Two of the great California writers and both of Irish stock. And Mike, I think he was a bit into the romance of his Irish, you know, radical Irish heritage. And of course, he was interested in labor action. So he, you know, his first book, Prisoners of the American Dream, was very much about the state of American unions um, as the post war era wound down. And they, you know, how they had uh, neglected the legacy of, of radicalism and actual movement in labor organizing.
0: In one of the obituaries I read, it mentioned that he joined the Communist Party, which surprised me because I had understood that he had been part of the Trotskyist International Marxist Group in the UK. More broadly, how do you think that the kind of traditions of Marxism that he might have encountered around New Left Review might have shaped his politics. I mean, he had been involved in SDS, but his Marxism, which obviously developed uh, very much over time, had a particular flavor to it.
1: Yeah, Mike was uh, not some kind of theoretical Marxist who read Marx and and developed his practice out of that. I mean, Mike was a working class guy who got involved in political activity and organizing, um, and even in writing kind of from the bottom up. And I think he always had a very arm's length relationship with theoretical Marxism and uh, the great history of Marxism, which he finally grappled with, I think, in his last book. But, uh, you know, he, he was not a kind of systematic theoretician. He was very much an observer, um, reacting to practical events and history that he learned. He was an incredible kind of archeologist of the past and the present, who would dig things up, dig up facts, and then assemble them into these incredible collages um, with his unbelievable ability to of juxtaposition. You know, and people who study technical innovation talk about the importance of juxtaposing existing technologies to come up with something radically new. And Mike did that with ideas on the left. And if you read, his writing is not only kind of sparkling and witty and insightful, but he comes up with the the damnedest juxtapositions that just you know, just lift your eyebrows and uh, Sometimes they're really gobsmacking. And that was, you know, the kind of, I think, signature of Mike's work in a way that often put him 20 years ahead of the rest of us. And, you know, we are so, I'm so thankful I knew him and grateful for all the ideas he planted in my head and I think in the heads of the entire English-speaking
0: left. In 1986, Verso published his book, Prisoners of the American Dream. It was part of this Haymarket series that he was heading there. And that book grappled with the question of why, despite its militant history, the U.S. never developed a Labour Party. Then, four years later, he published City of Quartz, which is really what put him on the map, you know, beyond small circles of Marxist readers. And that book, which... I wanted to ask you about what he was arguing in it, but this book about California and L.A. in particular, this grappling with L.A. as a city and as a place, it really indicated some sort of real shift in how he was approaching things from the sort of national history of Prisoners of the American Dream to something very urban and geographic in City of Courts. Did something happened between those two books?
1: Well, you're exactly right. And I think that's where, you know, new left reviewism was often very sweeping, though it had come out of a British left that was very steeped in Britain and British history and British politics. And so I'm not sure to what extent uh, that shift came out of just simply as roots in California and what came out of his time in Britain. But I think he probably was saying to himself, look, I need to take what I've learned here and the kind of thing they do and apply it to California and to Los Angeles. And in the process, he was part of a, a real revolution in the study of both. Here's California, which is, you know, what, the fifth largest economy in the world is absolutely dynamic and incredibly important part of the United States and of the world and at the time was almost entirely neglected and hit by historians, by serious historians and so on. Here and there, something, but not much. And Mike uh, discovered Kerry McWilliams in particular and re, you know, really led to a revival of Kerry McWilliams, who was this brilliant writer of the 30s, 40s, and 50s, eventually editor of The Nation. Back in New York, but came out of basically came out of L.A. and uh, and Mike, you know, revived serious study of California and then of L.A. and there were other people, of course, working on this at the time. Uh, you know, he inspired me, but there were other people working on L.A. and California. Uh, Gray Bracken writing about San Francisco, Alan Scott and Ed Soja writing about San, uh, L.A. But Mike was unique. Um, you know, and he captured things that sort of academic scholars, even ones on the left, really couldn't do. I mean, he just took it another step. He had an incredible geographical imagination. Um, he could juxtapose the past and the present and you know, really link the two in a remarkable way. Um, you know, he could make the whole subject come al- alive in a way that made City of Quartz this absolutely uh, revolutionary book in urban studies. You know, what could be sleepier? Not only was California studies sleepy, we were just founding the California Studies Association a couple, couple years before his book came out, and that was mainly 68ers who were doing that. But Mike's book put LA studies on the map. And, you know, urban studies have been absolutely sleepy and to the degree it wasn't, it would be books about New York or London or Chicago that had made the mark and nobody took Los Angeles seriously. And, you know, that, that, there was a revolution happening of a new wave of intellectuals looking at Los Angeles as it, it boomed in the 1980s. But Mike, you know, really put it on the map and woke everybody up and, and made everybody realize that urban studies and a place studies, so, you know, it was that ability to grasp a place, and it could be as as microscopic as Llano Del Rey, the utopian colony that he starts, uh, City of Quartz, off with, or the whole metropolitan region of Los Angeles. Or, of course, ultimately, he could take on uh, even broader topics. He he could take on every geographic scale, really. But the fact that he he was rooted in Southern California mattered because. Mike was not only somebody who could do a great helicopter kind of view of things and capture what was going on, but he was a great sort of anthropologist. Because of his time spent with working class people, he he could interview anybody, and he came up with the most uh, wonderful insights about the lives of common people.
0: Well, given what you said, how would you situate Mike Davis in the tradition of U.S. urbanism, urban studies? What did he draw from, and and how would you rate his own contributions?
1: He made urban studies sexy. And I know I'd go to conferences after that, and everybody, students' professor, was, were reading City of Quartz. It just, it made that topic into something that academics in particular wanted to study. And also, you know, in political movements, so you think of uh, uh, the tenants movements, you know, and the right to the city movement, which isn't just Mike, you know, there were other important writers like David Harvey and Ed Soja who made space and spatial studies sexy again um, on the left, but it, it was it was popping up all over, but Mike played a, absolutely vanguard role as he did in so many topics the other thing he did um oh and i should mention by the way everybody if you read a lot of its obits out of the la times or something all anybody talks about is mike in la but in fact he was from san diego and he did co-write a book on san diego that was devastating uh, takedown of the corruption of san diego politics and lifestyle That a lot of people never seen under the, under the endless sun. I think is the title of it. Anyway, what I wanted to go on to say was that uh, Mike also took urban studies because he was so spatial out to the urban fringe and beyond, where he talked about the the periphery and the extra urban impacts of cities. So he was. Uh, one of the first, if not the first, urban ecologists, which is now a whole, you know, academic field. People take it very seriously. Obviously, there's been an explosion of serious takes on world ecology and uh, spatial ecology, uh, partly under the impact of climate change, you know, and, and global warming and the coming disasters of that. Well, the present disasters from that. But Mike was there back in the 1980s and 90s when he was writing Ecology of Fear, and that take, for example, his, his uh, take on wildfires in California, which nobody took seriously then, and Mike writes this unbelievable chapter, essay that became a chapter in Ecology of Fear on a case for letting Malibu burn, where he's saying, you know, these wildfires in California are inevitable. Don't build try and build palatial mansions or cities in them uh, because it'll burn. And uh, the idea of the state and public money rescuing the rich of Malibu from this inevitable cycle of burning was ridiculous. Well, there was much more to it because he was also talking about uh, massive growth of inequality already in the 1980s and, and 90s, which was very prescient. But then he went on to talk about, you know, wildlife at the urban fringe. And then beyond that, in Dead Cities, where he talks about um, the sacrifice zones, the military sacrifice zones of the entire Southwest. And it's interesting, you know, I've got to say at this point, because he was a great nature writer, in a way. And, you know, he hated what a modern hubris, however you want to put it, modern hubris, capitalist exploitation of the earth um, you know the conquest of nature all the things ways we we put that phenomenon of modern life that is so devastated uh, places he loved and places around the the world and now the entire global ecosystem uh, mike mike saw that very clearly and he hated it because he loved the Southwest, you know. He loved the desert landscapes, what seems so harsh and unforgiving to people from the East Coast or from Europe. And Mike comes out and makes that also makes that exciting to think about with his unbelievable work. And then he turns that, uh, you know, to uh, to the globe.
0: I'm speaking with Richard Walker, geographer and professor emeritus at UC Berkeley. We're talking about Mike Davis, the late writer and urbanist, author of many influential works, including late Victorian Holocausts* and ecology of fear. We're going to turn to an edited excerpt of a talk that Mike Davis gave in Los Angeles on the politics of disaster. The
2: proposal I I wanna make is extraordinarily simple one and it has really two parts one is that the politics of disaster first and above all are the politics of land use and the second assertion is simply that disasters are political you know eminently political and to explain the relationship between these these two disasters we need to go back to the beginning of the, of the 20th century. When Los Angeles did something for which it has been praised in, in many history planning books and in, in urban histories, it became the first large city in the United States to adopt the German originated system of land use zoning. And it did this uh, in the case of the area which now familiar with the Pico Union, uh, Ramparts, MacArthur Park, Westlake neighborhood, whatever you want to call it. At the beginning of the 20th century, it wasn't really clear what part of Los Angeles wealthy people, middle class people, would live. On the hillsides and the mesas, both to the east and west of downtown LA, there were attractive Queen Anne homes and, and, and upscale developments at the turn of the century. But in 1909, after a complaint by some of the city's most prominent citizens, including General Harrison Gray Otis, who lived across from Westlake Park, now MacArthur Park, the city adopted this pioneering zoning ordinance, to keep noxious uses out of the neighborhood. The noxious uses being things like sweatshops, factories, slaughterhouses, industry in general. And of course this zoning act was followed a few years later by a very similar zoning act, uh, encouraged by the Rockefellers in New York to kick uh, sweatshops and, 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 and garment industry, keep them out of the Fifth, Fifth Avenue area. So. Zoning in the United States originates with this uh, attempt to keep middle-class or upper-class residential areas exclusive of noxious or industrial land uses. And that decision, however obscure it may seem today, was historically important because it more or less ratified that the west side of L.A. would be where middle-class people lived. And that Westlake District became the first of a whole secession of West sides. Every five or ten years, people would move further west and kind of wealth and power in L.A. would immigrate, but they would always immigrate in a western direction. Planning historians, however, have never paid any attention to the obverse side of this pioneer planning decision which was it did not apply to the east side of LA. It basically said that residentially exclusive areas would be protected to the west of downtown. But it ratified an already existing situation where on the east side and south of downtown uh, residences were mixed with industry. And indeed in 1909 something like 62,000 blue-collar workers lived in the area east of Alameda to the river from the Fremont gates of, uh, of uh, Elysian Park down to the old city limits of Washington. This is an area, this is the warehouse district of, of L.A. today, but in those days you had breweries and foundries and factories totally intermixed with, with residences. So the adverse side of this decision to have exclusive residential areas on the west side was to leave blue-collar neighborhoods unprotected from industry and the byproducts of industry on the east side and the south side. And then thirdly, in the same period, in a story that's never really been well told, there had been a fight by some of the city's reformers, particularly a Methodist minister named Dana Bartlett, who kind of introduced the settlement house to Los Angeles in the early 20th century. And he was a kind of like turn of the century Father Greg Boyle, worked in the same neighborhoods that Mission Dolores is in today, the flatlands of Boyle Heights. And his idea was that the children, the poor children of the congested districts of LA the area, East L.A., that became Lincoln Heights, the Boyle Heights, Flatlands, and so on, needed playgrounds, needed green space, needed a place to breathe and, and, and play and have the freedom other kids did. So he made a bold proposal to the city, which he argued in a book that he published uh, the same year as the Pioneer Zoning Ordinance, that the L.A. River should become a great Greenbelt, in part, specifically to benefit the poor children of of Los Angeles. Needless to say, since the banks of the river were controlled by the railroads, the same Southern Pacific and its uh, two sisters that had only 14,000 derailments every uh, 1,400 derailments every five years, none of this came to pass, and the LA River became an industrial sewer for industry uh, along its banks. This is even a generation before it was, it was turned into uh, uh, a concrete flood control channel. Let's race a little bit ahead. It's 1930. About 20% of the population of, of Los Angeles is unemployed. Uh, people are beginning to write noir novels about the city, changing its image from sunshine uh, the L.A. River's one vast Hoover bill. And in this fraught, dramatic atmosphere of the early Depression, the most illustrious Citizens Committee in L.A. history has come to render its final report. 168 of the most powerful, wealthy, well-known, famous people ever to live in Los Angeles, ranging from Louis B. Mayer, and Mary Pickford down to Henry Robinson. Everybody's there except for the the Chandler family. What urgent thing has brought them together? Unemployment? Homelessness? No. This is the Citizens Committee on Parks, Beaches, and Recreation. And the crisis that's welded them together is the fact that Los Angeles, already somewhat like that Dowager actress and Sunset Boulevard is rapidly losing all of its beauty. The city which has spent more than any other city in American history to publicize its charms has invested almost nothing to preserve or enhance those charms. It has less park space or usable recreation space per capita than any big city in the United States. Most of the beach frontage, usable beach frontage, are controlled by private landowners and private residents. In fact, by 1930, the amount of public beach space, beach frontage available to each citizen of L.A. County has shrunk down to one-half inch, you know, per person. So L.A. has this quandary which even for a while seems to overshadow the depression and not become a cause of it, which is this whole economy that's capitalized on sunshine and recreation, beaches, outdoor sports, leisure. Proves to be a cruel disappointment to the millions of tourists who come west to see it. You know, the beaches are, are you know, are gridlocked. There's hardly a green space to be seen. The most attractive natural assets of the region are locked up behind the gates of you know, expensive homes and so on. So the Citizens Committee understanding, even though they, of course, live in these gated chateaus, they understand that this is undermining the economy and the attraction of the area. And, of course, the real mainspring of all their, their wealth, which is real estate. So they commissioned the most eminent landscape architects, and planners in the United States, Olmsted brothers, Bartholomew, and associates from Boston, they have to understand that Frederick Law Olmsted Jr. is no flaming radical. I'm not sure that he really cares about the May Day demonstration in 1930 where the L.A. police brutalized and beat hundreds of people in, in Pershing Square. His model of the utopia is Park rich Minneapolis, not Soviet Russia. Yet his analysis in this report remains very, very extraordinary. And the brunt of it is is this. First of all, accepting the premise of the whole study, that Los Angeles is destroying the very asset that created the city, which is its natural landscapes and its beauty. Secondly, the cause of this is an unregulated, you know, irresponsible private market in real estate, which is supported by public action, supported by the city. And as an example of this, he turns to what's happening on, on the west side, where exclusive developments are beginning to creep up into the beautiful sycamore and oak canyons of the Santa Monica's and into the Santa Monica's themselves, and also to creep out to the beaches and even up to the edges of that Shangri-La, that hidden inner sanctum of the, the Ridge family, you know, Malibu. And he points out that by providing subsidies in the forms of paying for roads and infrastructure, fire, flood, and police protection, the city's actually generating inducements to developers to destroy the open spaces crucial to the whole future of the city, future to its self definition, to that landscape that you've seen on a million postcards and orange crate, crate labels. That ten percent of the population can Preserve privately for themselves. That is quintessential LA experience because they can live in the hills or the beach. They can have huge backyards. They can commune with nature in what Rain and Bannon would later call those great thickets of of, of privacy, possibly also selfishness uh, in the Santa Monica mountains. But the price of that is the impoverishment of the rest of the population despite the fact that they live in the land of sunshine you know have less park space than you know in most people and no access to that
0: and that's writer mike davis speaking in los angeles in 1994. dick walker It's striking in the work of mike davis how he brought together the social and the ecological the sort of human-made hazards in a place like Los Angeles, but in no way limited to it. In other words, these social contradictions, which often had been seen in narrowly Marxist terms as ones that only affected human beings, that he had an ability to sort of tie all these contradictions together. Because in many ways, it seems like, to me anyway, that he was part of a shift that took place of breathing kind of new life into Marxism, and much of it came from the West Coast.
1: Yes, I think that's right. A lot of it did, you know, in the areas I was working in, in, in urban and industrial studies, uh, that was very true. You know, the L.A. L.A. school in particular, California in general, uh, people who trained out here at UC Berkeley or UCLA dispersed from here and carried a new message that shook up a lot of fields. So, you know, um, in that sense, you know, Mike was, again, kind of in the vanguard, but at the same time, part of a larger larger movement. But this junction of, of urban studies, social analysis and social critique with nature and environmental or ecological critique is something that's developed profoundly since then, and something for which, uh, you know, when we were young, um, Mike and I were young, I won't throw you into that batch, but uh, you know, that was just foreboding to talk about. I mean, that was complete blind spot on the left and in Marxism you're regarded as a bit of a sort of old English gentry bird watcher or something. And uh, that revolution had to happen. Now, Mike, Mike was hyperbolic at times, he was dystopian, very often very dystopian uh, at times, although he was looking for utopia, like everybody on the left, but he wasn't afraid to sort of boldly face the dead ends and the catastrophes and the apocalypse. So he was kind of apocalyptic at times, partly to make his point, partly because that was sort of ran deep in his character. Now, obviously there's a danger of that and you can get, You know, you can get caught overstating things and proving to be wrong. But what's amazing, I mean, Mike was so brilliant, that what is amazing is how prescient he was about so many things. So whether it was his ability to latch on the theory of extraterrestrial catastrophe uh, affecting Earth history, which he did in the 90s, Uh, uh, El Nino's and growing, you know, and catastrophic weather events, um, or uh, wildfires, uh, catastrophic uh, firestorms at the urban edge or in cities themselves. On all those fronts, uh, Mike Mike got it, you know, and I guess partly because He was kind of a revolutionary thinker in a way, and realized, you know, revolutions aren't just things that happen because you have a long-term, the old mole, the vanguard, you know, soldiering away, and then the revolution happens. You know, he realized social revolutions come often out of nowhere, and uh, Earth revolutions, a climatic and other kinds of. events you know catastrophic events earthquakes whatever often come out of nowhere and change world history you know catastrophes in earth sciences are are like catast- catastrophic events like wars and revolutions and and human history and he he saw the link there you know he loved that kind of catastrophic take as opposed to kind of equilibrium theory gradualism and so on, and it it appealed to his personality, I guess, Uh, but what it meant is that something like the monster at our door, he's talking, I mean, I remember being shocked by this book when it came out, what, 2004 or so? He'd been, he he could go and look at what was going on in China with the massing of humans and animals in close proximity and see that uh, flu, at that time, he was mostly obsessed with flu, and uh, that they could jump species, and you get whole new flu viruses that could devastate the world, and sar viruses, and that sort of thing. Well, now, of course, he basically predicted COVID uh, twenty years before the fact. He could look at El El Ninos and and talk about catastrophic droughts and famines in his late Victorian Holocaust. You know, also in the late nineties, and. Basically, see the kind of world of increasing uh, flooding, hurricanes, and droughts that we're getting today with climatic change. Um, and you know, he called it. And the wildfires, of course, in California, is exactly what's now become the norm. And at the time he was writing, it was regarded as oh, oh so very exceptional. Only it wasn't, and he knew that. So Mike was was incredibly prescient. And he also, you know, he he could. This is an example of his globalism as well as his localism. His ability to jump scales. So he could write something like "Planet of the Slums," about the ca- way capitalism is totally, and industrialism, the modern world has totally upended, the old agrarian economies that dominated for ten thousand years, and we're in the final throes of a process that's been going on since at least the 17th century in the growth of london um he could see that that was happening around the world but often in catastrophically bad ways for the people who the millions and millions of people flowing into these mega cities like lagos uh or shanghai and what was happening to them and of course again he could run into critics uh who knew more about some of those places he he couldn't be the anthropologist of the world the way he could of of LA or San Diego. Um, so, you know, it's more fraught with, perhaps, with mistakes, but again, the ability to see at that level. And, to, you know, he woke up a lot of studies of the global south, which then became very, very popular. So again, very much a vanguard and far ahead of all of it.
0: Dick Walker, you mentioned the monster at our door about avian flu. And the argument that he was making that viruses like pandemic of avian flu have become much more likely to uh, mutate under capitalist industrial food production and deforestation. We had the uh, good fortune to interview Mike Davis on this program about that book, and here is an excerpt from it.
3: I believe that the, the factors that have changed the ecology flu sped up its evolution and made it in some ways an even more dangerous uh, disease and made pandemic a possibility not only from H5N1 but from other sources as well. It's been, first of all, the industrialization of poultry in the last 10 or 15 years. East Asia and developing countries in general have been driving demand for protein, particularly as they urbanize. 80% of China's increased demand for protein is supplied by, uh, for chicken, it's, is is supplied by corporate uh, poultry companies, uh, particularly one country called CP, based in Bangkok, which is a huge integrated company along the lines of the American poultry giant, Tyson. And so what's happening is that you're creating these enormous concentrations, populations of birds, which have never existed in in wild nature or, or in agriculture before. Outside of Bangkok, just like outside of Little Rock, you have Urban belts of one factory farm after another, huge warehouses, each containing 20, 30, as many as 50,000 chickens. So that has radically changed the nature of how influenza would spread and evolve amongst birds. At the same time, we've broken down one biological barrier after another between uh, urban spaces and and wild nature. The world is, of course, now a majority urban world the un reported 2 years ago that there are a billion people now living in slums many of these slums have higher population densities than even the most overcrowded slums of the 19th century and then add to that the interconnections of, of air traffic there right now i think something like what is it 400 or million or almost no it's more than that it may be even 500 million americans Fly every year. You add all these factors together and, and call it in shorthand, call it economic globalization, and you've created a new environment for diseases like influenza uh, to flourish and for the evolution of the diseases to to speed up, and indeed for the diseases to become more virulent.
0: And that's an excerpt of our interview with Mike Davis about the possibility of a bird flu pandemic. One of the things, uh, Dick Walker, I'd like to ask you about, and I should say, this is against the grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm Sasha Lilly, and we're talking about the late writer, urbanist, Mike Davis, who died on October 25th. One of the things I wanted to ask you about is about Mike Davis's ability to engage with science. Yeah, you know,
1: Mike, uh, one of the things struck me when I first knew Mike, and uh, when he moved back to California and he would come up and visit occasionally and say, stay with me us and uh, he would take off in the morning. He'd run. He would have had a five-mile run and gone to the library, read six newspapers, and been looking into some historical work he wanted at the Bancroft Library at, at UC Berkeley. He'd be back before I'd had my coffee and I thought yeah, I'm never going to catch up with this guy, and of course I never did. Um, but one of the things was I saw was his dogged devotion to research and to ideas and to taking. Especially, you know, he, he not only was a great social theoretician, but he understood science. And I wouldn't say he was a, you know, he wasn't the pathbreaker in science, but he could pick up on it. And he would read deeply in scientific works about climate, El Niños, about uh, interplanetary catastrophe, and the revolution that was going on after the di- discovery of the KT boundary and the impact um, c- uh, crater Chichlube that, that ex- caused the extinction of the dinosaurs and so on. You know, this is all very recent. There was a revolutionary and geology and planetary science and mike picked up on that or he'd pick up on wildfire studies you know he would bring up these names of people he was reading intensely that i'd never heard of and he was already taking them very seriously and applying their ideas i was amazed when i was editor of a Uh, lefty geography journal, Antipode, back in the 90s, Mike wrote an essay for me that went into ultimately into late Victorian holocaust about, I guess he was working at that time about also about the interplanetary impacts, you know, meteor impacts on earth and how the planetary system was affecting the earth itself. And he was writing a couple of essays for that. And I gave a draft to Walter Alvarez who's the guy who actually discovered the KT boundary and the you know which led to the discovery of the Chicxulub crater and the uh, they really sealed this new science uh, you know interplanetary earth science and Mike had written a review of all the scientific work up to that point on this and I asked Walter who was just downstairs, when we were both chairs of our departments, and uh, I said, Walter, would you look at this? Uh, my friend Mike Davis has written about this and thinks wants to know if it's accurate. So Walter looked at it. And he said, Yeah, he's got it right. And I just thought, How the heck did he do that? You know? And that was Mike. Mike was, uh, you know, was one of the most brilliant people I've ever met, in a way that I still don't entirely grasp. Because you know uh, somebody like David Harvey, who was my mentor, you know, systematically working through Marx, working through the theory of capital, over and over and over. Well, and Mike, uh, much which which I really loved, would jump from topic to topic, and yet he could master a new topic very quickly and write something absolutely brilliant about it. So his work, you know, is hard to is hard to tie up in a in a bow. Both because of his jumping around topics, and also the, the way his mind worked, and when he wrote, you know, this putting together things, unexpected juxtapositions that were just brilliant, made for brilliant insights. So, Mike is a hard hard man to sum up, but I will say he was a wonderful fellow, and a lovely human being. Um, his it's funny because you know his speaking style when you hear his interviews is so flat with a lot of, well, you know, you know, and not a brilliant speaker, but you can hear the wheels of his mind working as he speaks, and that's what really comes out on the page, um, almost like no one else I know. So uh, we should be very thankful that we had him for as long as we did. Uh, I hope I think his works will uh, endure for a long time. And I think, um, you know, as, I, as a left, academic, intellectual, uh, I think our debt to him is, on many fronts, is really indelible.
0: He was fortunate or uh, not fortunate enough to have enough of an audience that those in power actually found him a thorn in their side. And, you know, for many writers on the left, they would aspire to such a thing. But in practice, you know, that can be pretty painful. How did they retaliate against him?
1: Well, that was mostly around City of Courts and Ecology of Fear. Yeah, I mean, there was one developer, I think it was a developer from Malibu even, who made it his job to attack Mike and to you know dig up uh, problems, uh, factual inaccuracies, here and there scattered through his two, those two big works on Los Angeles. And of course, when you write as fast as Mike did, and, and you do have some things that are hyperbolic, or you know, he's reaching, or he's looking ahead um, 20 years, um, you could, yeah, you can get some things wrong. But it was pretty much minor in the big picture. Uh, he was right about almost everything, and he had a target on his back because what he was mostly doing there was taking on the rich, taking on land developers, taking on segregation, and you know the neighborhood movements that were really based on white privilege and white supremacy. And uh, boy, you make a lot of enemies when you do that, and and conventional thinking. And conventional people, even conventional liberals, hate that. So, uh, so yeah, he, he had a lot of targets on his back here and there. But you know, I think, I, I think he took it with um, equanimity. He uh, was very level-headed, calm, guys, I think you can hear in his interviews. And uh, you know, he just got on, got on with his work. And what's amazing is he was calm, not only calm about that, but when he was facing death, you know, his sister died of the same esophageal cancer. He had already had a bout with it a few years back, an operation to take out his parts of his stomach and so on. It was most unpleasant, but he really faced the end with equanimity. He he was really a family guy. You know, you think from his writing, this was a wild man, and from some of the obits that say, oh, he was here and there, and but really, he was a he was a family man. He, he had four children; he loved them to death, and in his final days, he wanted to spend with his kids and That's what he did, even though he was a you know such an important public figure so I'm even there, uh, my admiration for Mike is enormous, and you know rest in peace.
0: Let me end by asking you about his optimism. Much has been made of his pessimism and Doom saying and apocalypticism, but one essay struck me. I think it was in the early 2000s, uh, "Who Will Build the Ark," which was published in New Left Review, where he traces two different futures: one, which is the you know the one we stay on, hurtling toward climate catastrophe, and then the other is one of the socialist city and of a different future, and uh, replacing private luxury with public abundance. Can you say something about that other side of Mike Davis's thinking? Because obviously he wasn't just a prophet of doom or wasn't that maybe at all, but he was someone with strong radical convictions.
1: Yes, I think that's exactly right. I mean, Mike really was a socialist in the true sense who wanted a different future, thought it was possible. You know, in some of his final interviews, he, he, he made a strongest point was uh, his um, his admiration for the young of today uh, people who are still battling his belief that you know change came from from mass mass struggle uh, from people fighting for a better future and that people would that they're not going to sit they're not going to sit and take the future the capitalism and the the rich, the Elon Musks and so on, have in store for them. And uh, so in that sense, you know, I wouldn't call him an optimist, but I think, you know, he was a believer in the human possibility. He was such a humanist in that sense. And he believed that we could make a better future because we've always, human beings have always made their future. And they've always had to pull themselves out of disasters. Um, You know, the 20th century world wars being, only the most recent uh, examples or, you know, the fall of the Soviet empire and so on. So, you know, Mike saw all that and believed in human potential, human possibility. And that's what made him a socialist, and that's what made him a kind of optimist and certainly not a prophet of doom. He was a prophet of doom when it came to capitalism and the rich and the pathways of power, all of which he hated. And one of the last things he said in an interview also was, you know, I failed if people see that I didn't love LA. And he did. He loved the places he was in, he loved the people around him that he saw, and he loved, he loved humanity.
0: Dick Walker, thank you so much.
1: You're most welcome, This is a pleasure.
0: And I've been speaking with geographer Richard Walker about Mike Davis. I should say that I'm connected to PM Press, which has published Richard Walker. Mike Davis was the trailblazing Marxist urbanist and writer, author of many books, including City of Quartz, Late Victorian Holocaust, Ecology of Fear, Magical Urbanism, among many others. He died October 25th, 2022. And you've been listening to Against the Grain. I'm Sasha Lilly. Thanks so much for listening, and please tune in again next time.